Is the unborn a person or not? Does the Bible teach that Christians should oppose abortion? This is the Deep Questions Podcast, and I'm your host, Chase Thompson, a pastor and writer in Salinas, California. Well, the issue of abortion is probably the single most contentious ethical issue in the United States and a lot of other places around the world, too. You're no doubt aware of the June 2022 decision in which the United States Supreme Court has not, actually, as some have erroneously noted, outlawed abortion, but it did hold that abortion is not a constitutionally guaranteed right, and thus SCOTUS paid the paved the way for individual states to decide the issue of abortion. And we've got some deep, deep questions today. And before I even launch into the introduction, I would like to go ahead and put out a very simple thesis statement that we will revisit a couple of times, and we're basically going to spend the entire rest of the episode unpacking. Here is my thesis statement. If a baby in the womb is not yet a person, there are many legitimate and moral reasons to have an elective abortion. Alternatively, if a baby in the womb is a person, there are no legitimate or moral reasons to have an elective abortion. Now look, I've chosen my words very carefully here. Person is defined as a human being regarded as an individual, according to Lexico, and I'm using the term elective in this episode to encompass all abortions that do not involve rape incest, serious fetal abnormality, or imminent danger to the mother's life. We're going to cover those particular issues in an upcoming episode, but for today's episode, I intend to tackle the approximately 97.18% of abortions that are elective in the sense that they're not happening because of threat to the mother's life, serious fetal abnormality, rape, or incest. Now, you might wonder, at the preciseness of the statistic I quoted, 97.18%. And I'll tell you that it comes from a survey of over 70,000 abortions that happened in Florida in the year 2018. Why Florida? Well, because Florida is one of the few states that actually keeps statistics as to why an abortion happened. And I would actually say that 70,239 is an excellent sample size. So in 2018 in Florida, 0.01% of pregnancies, that is, I think, one in 10,000, resulted from an incestuous relationship. 0.15%, not 15%, 0.15%, that is way less than one in 100. In fact, it's a 15 and 10,000 and 0.15% of pregnancies in Florida in 2018, the woman was raped. Now, that's way too many, but it is not a high percentage. In 0.2%, the woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy. In 0.98%, less than 1%, there was a serious fetal abnormality. In 1.48%, the woman's physical health was somehow threatened by the pregnancy. In 1.88%, it was determined the woman's psychological health was threatened by the pregnancy. In 20.4% of 
aborted pregnancies in Florida. The woman aborted for social or economic reasons and in 74.9% of abortions in Florida in 2018, no reason was given. So once again, in light of those statistics, here's my thesis for today. If a baby in the womb is not yet a person, there are many legitimate and moral reasons to have an elective abortion. On the other hand, if a baby in the womb is a person, there are no legitimate or moral reasons to have an elective abortion. Now, if you wish to disagree with my thesis today, at least for this episode, then you must do so on the basis of elective abortion, because that's all I'm going to talk about today. We're not talking about rape, incest, ectopic pregnancies, which a lot of people have thrown away around in discussing the Roe versus Wade overturning rule ruling by the Supreme Court, which has nothing to do with it topic pregnancies. We're not going to be talking about severe fetal abnormality pregnancies or genuine danger to the mother. I'm going to address those issues in an upcoming episode, but our focus today and the focus of my argument and discussion today is on the approximately 97% of abortions that happen in the United States that I have labeled as elective. Now, to be fair, the American Medical Association's Journal of Ethics says that neither I nor you nor or anybody else should use the term elective at all when it comes to abortion. Their contention is that abortion is health care, and the reason for the abortion doesn't matter at all. And, you know, I think they'd be right, or at least largely, if the baby in the womb could be proven to not be a person. Well, let me read a section of lawyer and medical ethicist Katie Watson's article in the Journal of Ethics of the American Medical Association because in her article, Watson, who is very pro-choice, inadvertently gives us an excellent way to think about the issue of abortion. She writes, regardless of reason, the proper label for abortion is Healthcare. My stepfather recently had elective surgery, a classic case of knee replacement on demand. Tom wanted to reverse the perfectly natural physical change of eroded cartilage exacerbated by his choice to play squash for pleasure. So he went to a physician who agreed with his value-laden rejection of how using a wheelchair would change his life. Insurance paid for this elective procedure because his physician recommended it, but that recommendation was simply confirmation that a safe medical procedure could return Tom's body and life to what he previously experienced as his baseline state. The phrase knee surgery on demand is as silly as the phrase abortion on a demand, yet the latter phrase appears in political rhetoric and judicial opinions. Now, as a side note, I need to say I find the modern progressive version of Newspeak quite interesting in that it often tells us what to think and what to say without giving a rationale or authority or reasons for that. For instance, Katie Watson in this article simply declares that abortion is health care, a statement I might agree with if, and it's a very big if, if the unborn were not a person. But she does not back up her declaration with a rationale as to why abortion is health care. 
of greater importance in Watson's article is the issue of Tom's knee, her stepfather. Expert medical ethicist and NYU-educated lawyer Katie Watson indicates that there is no essential difference between the eroded and damaged cartilage in her stepfather's knee, removed by a surgeon in order to help Tom avoid a wheelchair, and an unborn child that is to be aborted. And... Make no mistake, the slight level of Watson's snark in a comparing abortion to her stepfather's knee surgery is meant to demonstrate her apparent and really obvious view that there is, again, no appreciable difference between removing a developing unborn baby from the womb and removing damaged cartilage from the knee. And this gives us a fantastic way to think about abortion. Is there a fundamental difference between the bad cartilage in Tom's knee and the baby in, I don't know, Tammy's womb? Is there a difference between those two things? Is there a difference between cartilage that is damaging your knee that needs to be removed and the baby that is in the womb. And as you can probably surmise, the single most fundamental issue in the issue of abortion is the personhood of the unborn. Now, one challenge to you as we begin to discuss this topic, I have seen supporters of choice and supporters of abortion hurl some pretty pointed and strong accusations against those who are in favor of making abortion illegal. I spent about 10 minutes looking on Twitter a few minutes ago in researching this podcast episode, and I found several replies to a pair of pro-choice articles that were posted a few days ago by CBS News and NBC News, and I want to give you an example of some of what is being said about pro-life people on social media. For instance, Rick Turner at rturner underscore rvc says, The GOP and SCOTUS are trying to create the United States of white Christian straight theocracy and take us back to the Dark Ages. What a truly shameful time for my country. Patriotic cats at Stanford-Sumpton, S-U-M-T-I-N, writes, It will result in more deaths. These extremists don't care. It's about controlling women. At You Don't Get Access 1 says, If the doctors think these opponents actually care about either the mother or the child, they're naive. They, pro-life people, don't. Not in the slightest. They've never given an expletive about children. The only thing they care about is the power to make others do as they want. At Pine Mikey says, when you have an ideology that doesn't care about women's rights, it's not a big step further for them not to care if a mother dies giving childbirth. At Esmeralda IZ says, they don't care about lives at all. It's just owning the libs and the feminists. It's power and control. If they cared about life, they'd make sure kids could finish elementary school alive. By the way, see my episode a couple of a few weeks ago on the issue of guns and such. Continuing, at Teresa Blue Dot writes, Christian nationalists, the dominionists who want to rule us all, all and are ruling us all, currently thanks to the corrupt hashtag SCOTUS, 
They want women to suffer and die. They fantasize about it. They have an Armageddon fetish, and they won't stop forcing it on us. At Gilroy Margaret says, replying to an NBC article that was posted about the death of an Irish woman in 2012 that was denied an abortion because in 2012 abortion was legal in Ireland. She says, it's not a bug that this woman died. That's a feature. Republicans hate women and children and want them dead. At Tippy Taye, W.H. Harrison says, on one hand, we have people who believe the earth is 5,000 years old. I don't know any Christian who believes that, that Jesus saddled a brontosaurus and that snakes talk. On the other hand, trained medical professionals with centuries of combined experience. Who to believe? Who to believe? One more. At Nolan Anonymous One says, this isn't about fetuses or babies. It's about control and pushing a religious minority ideology on the majority. Look, all those posts took me about 10 minutes to find, but over the last few weeks, I've read hundreds of tweets, posts, and comments online leading up to the SCOTUS Roe versus Wade decision and in the aftermath of that decision, and I've heard people that are pro-life accused of all sorts of malicious motivations, barbaric behaviors, dastardly desires, and illicit intents regarding their reasons for being pro-life. I mean, do people really think pro-life people fantasize about women dying? That they want women to suffer? That they have an a quote, Armageddon fetish, and they won't stop forcing it on us? And look, to be fair, I've seen pro-life people accuse pro-choice people of much the same kind of thing. And oh my gosh, can we not control our tongue and avoid saying such outrageous thing? This things, this kind of inflammatory and 99% false rhetoric is the very opposite of productive. It just makes things worse on both sides. It poisons the country and sows incredible discord. I'd like to say that we as a country can do better, but honestly, these past few years of increasingly divisive political schisms have really just about convinced me that we can't do better at all. But please hear me when I vow this to you. I have no interest in controlling women or going back to the dark ages or women dying or children dying or gathering power and control. I myself, I was once a Republican politically, but honestly, the events and behaviors of the past few years have soured me extremely on politics and especially the major two American political parties. The United States is absolutely starved for quality leadership with character, and I struggle to see examples of that on either side of the political aisle. The issue of abortion. comes down to one very simple and compelling issue to me, and I've already stated it a couple of times, and I'm going to do it again. If a baby in the womb is not yet a person, there's many legitimate and moral reasons to have an elective abortion. On the other hand, if a baby in the womb 
is a person, there are no legitimate or moral reasons to have an elective abortion because there are no legitimate or moral reasons to kill a person. That is my rationale. It's the rationale of the vast majority. In fact, I think it's the rationale of every single pro-life people that I know, and I know many of them. There are perhaps some pro-lifers that are strictly politically motivated. I can imagine there are some pro-lifers who simply wish to control women in some way. Maybe they want to go back to the dark ages. I don't know. I've never legitimately heard anybody say anything along those lines. There are certainly some who claim pro-life positions that are probably misogynistic, backwards, fools. But the vast majority are not. The vast majority of pro-life people are fully convinced that an unborn baby is a real, genuine human life, a life worth saving. And look, you're bearing false witness, lying and accusing when you paint with a broad brush and claim evil motivations for people who are pro-life. I will endeavor not to do that to people who are pro-choice and Perhaps you who are listening to this will maybe do the same courtesy. We need to stop biting and devouring each other. Yes, I do base my belief that the unborn is a real human living person with all the rights and privileges afforded to other human living persons in part on what the Bible says. I don't think that there is a legitimate debate about the Bible's position on the humanness or the personness of the unborn. The Bible is really, really clear. And I think you're going to see that in a few minutes as we dive into many of the Bible's passages on the unborn. Now, if you are a pro-choice person who claims to be a Christian, I wonder if you've actually sat down with a Bible and spent some really time with this question and grappled through its teachings on the unborn. This episode of the show has a couple of audiences, and honestly, it's probably not going to make a ton of sense to you if you aren't in one of these two audiences. So I, I don't know if I would rank this first, but number one, I am writing or podcasting, whether you're listening to this or, or hearing it or reading it, to those who are Christian and pro-life to examine the biblical basis for those beliefs and to better equip you to talk about the theological reasons why you are pro-life. But I'm also writing and podcasting this episode for those who claim to be Christian and are pro-choice, meaning they believe that the choice of whether or not to abort should be up to the mother and not to the law. And along those lines, this episode is also for those who would define themselves as Christian and are pro-abortion. I see a difference between pro-choice and pro-abortion, and I would say a pro-abortion person is somebody who believes that the abortion is a good thing and a helpful thing in society, and obviously there's some nuance there. Some people think abortion is something to be personally avoided, and they might think it should be rare and safe, but they don't want to foist their opinion on other people, and some people believe that abortion should be actively encouraged, and that rather than elective abortion being a thing, that elective childbirth should be the thing. In other words, only wanted babies that could be well cared for with a, without overly taxing a person's mental, physical, emotional, or financial well-being, only those kind of babies should be brought into the world in those kind of idyllic situations. And that actually seems to be the position of Katie Watson, the lawyer and ethicist we discussed earlier. 
Well, let me read you a few statements from a few of those who identify as Christian and pro-choice. And, and again, I'm saying the people that say these sorts of things are my target audience for this episode. Hippie for Peace says, in responding to the SCOTUS ruling on Roe, Ro, writes, their kind of Christianity is not Christianity. In other words, pro-lifers Christianity is not real Christianity. She says, it's tyranny. And as a Christian myself, it's extremely offensive. Jesus walked in love and not hate. They need to stop calling themselves Christians. Josh, who is at Lickable Cat, writes, as a Christian, I don't think the overturning of Roe versus Wade is good. And this is why. Over half of abortions are from people below the federal poverty line, with that number increasing further when you include low-income households. The problem is that these people don't see a way to live when you add all the expenses that a kid brings. Many young people feel like they can't have a life if they have a baby too young. They feel they can't go to college or even have a good career. Yeah, some of them rise above and persevere and have great lives, but even more don't. Now look, I... I, I could say, Josh, that those are some solid reasons to consider that having a kid can be quite difficult and challenging and something you really need to think through. But do those reasons justify ending the life of a person if the unborn is a person? And I would also say this, and this is an issue we're going to explore probably in quite a bit of depth in upcoming episodes. The people that talk about how it's a good thing that lower income households should be able to abort need to understand a very disturbing dynamic that not a lot of pro-choice people either talk about or seem to be aware of. And that is in the United States, somewhere around three times the percentage of white black women have abortions than white women. And the net result of that is that there are less African-American children being born. And that doesn't sound like a good thing to me. If you actually research some of the beginnings of Planned Parenthood, and Margaret Sanger, who was one of the big founders of Planned Parenthood, you're going to find some pretty sketchy things said about race in the early days there and things that make you wonder if there's not some sort of agenda there to reduce the population of minorities. Now, I realize that's a pretty strong accusation and one we're going to talk about in upcoming episodes, but go look at some of the eugenics things that Margaret Sanger wrote about African Americans. It's it's t- kind of... It's kind of terrifying. It's really disturbing. I, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that pro-choice people want to see less minorities in the United States of America, but mathematically, when you look at the results of abortion, that is precisely what is happen, happening. More affluent white kids are being born, more affluent Asian kids are being born unless African-American kids are being born. Uh, That's troubling. Well, we'll unpack that later. Let's read a couple of more of these. Houston Sports Insider at Big Sarge Sports with a Z says, As a Christian, I'm embarrassed that Christianity is being forced upon people. God's plan is for us to make the choice to follow Christ, not have the Supreme Court tell people they should. 
We'll talk about that at the end of the episode, whether or not morality is being forced on people. Melissa at Daydream 113017 says, As a Christian, I believe that Jesus' purpose was never to build an earthly kingdom, and I believe that forcing others to live by our morals doesn't change their heart or win them to Christ. In fact, it most often pushes people away, losing souls in the greater kingdom to come. And one more, at Civil Rights Stand says, As a Christian, it's truly sick that these people are using and manipulating people with God in the Bible. Well, those people are our target audience today. This episode, the goal is to, again, one, equip pro-life Christians with scripture to define and defend their position, and it is hopefully an argument that will cause those who identify as Christians and are either pro-choice or pro-abortion to reconsider their position in light of what the Bible says. Now, if you are a pro-choice person who is not a Christian, well, this episode is not targeted to you, and on Honestly, it may not make a lot of sense to you because it will represent a lot of Bible-based arguments, but do allow me to at least ask you how you've come to the determination that either A, an unborn child is not a person and therefore does not deserve protection, or B, an unborn child may be a person in some senses, but deserves less protection and self-determination than the child's mother does. Now, you might say, well, science, and I suppose many scientists would agree with you. I don't just suppose it. I, I know many scientists would agree with you, but as we will soon see, certainly not all scientists will agree with you. How can science prove when life begins anyway? How can science prove when personhood begins? Is it really so simple that the unborn is not a person until it moves, I don't know, six or seven inches down the birth canal and begins to breathe? That is a very very strange way of scientifically defining personhood. Perhaps you've determined that the unborn is not a person based on some sort of philosophical approach. And honestly, there are many brilliant philosophers who would agree with you. We're going to quote some of them in a minute. They would swear up and down that personhood does not begin until birth. But the fact is that most philosophers, including pro-choice philosophers, have a very nuanced and, well, somewhat difficult to grasp understanding of personhood and humanity in general. Now, you can see that nuance in complication in John Horgan's interview with noted Australian philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer, who is very much pro-choice in Scientific America. Horgan is a senior writer for Scientific America. He interviewed Peter Sanger uh, a few years ago, and in summing up Singer's views on abortion, Horgan, again, very competent academic and scientific writer, wrote this. He says, first of all, he, Peter Singer, agreed with many pro-lifers that a fetus, even at six weeks, is a, quote, living human being. He showed us slides of fetuses because we should not, quote, run away from what abortion is. Well, shortly after Horgan published that article, Peter Singer wrote in and corrected what he believed to be Horgan's mischaracterizations, and Singer said this, 
I said that the fetus, or even the embryo, can be considered to be a living human being. I then sharpened the notion of, quote, human being into either member of the species Homo sapiens or person and said, using two versions of the basic argument I had in my PowerPoint, that the fetus is a member of the species Homo sapiens, but not a person, because the idea of a person involves the capacity to see oneself as existing over time. That's Peter Singer, a brilliant philosopher's definition of personhood, the capacity to see oneself as existing over time. On that same article, Francis Kisling, who is the longtime or was the longtime president of Catholics for Choice, I don't think he is anymore, but he was the president of that group for decades. He wrote to Horgan after Singer's interview, and Kisling said, There's an implication here that those who favor legal abortion, like Peter Singer, should be expected to deny that fetuses are living human beings. That, of course, is the propaganda message that those opposed to abortion put out. I myself, says Kisling, have been a card-carrying pro-choice leader since 1970, president of Catholics for Choice for 25 of those years, and a founder of the National Abortion Federation. I don't know, says Kisling, a single pro-choice leader who thinks the fetus is not a living human being. The choice movement, like Peter, distinguishes between persons and human beings. The definition of when a fetus moves from mere member of the species to person differs within the movement and may not, as Peters does, rely on sentience or self-awareness. But again, no one thinks it is not human, nor that it is not living. That's some very interesting words from Kissling there. And this is what you got to understand. That is how philosophers describe discuss abortion and the status of the unborn child. And you can see just from listening, you may even had to rewind a couple of times, you can see that their discussion is very nuanced. It's highly technical. But the takeaway is that most pro-choice philosophers consider an unborn child a living human being, but not a person. And that gets us back to the main question. How are we going to determine personhood? If you are a pro-choice person or a pro-choice Christian, how did you come to the conclusion that the unborn is not a person? And are you 100% certain that the unborn is not a person? And if you do have that high level of certitude, 100% is a high number, where does it come from? And again, those questions get us back to the crux of the episode, which is, if a baby in the womb is not yet a person, there are many legitimate and moral reasons to have an elective abortion. Alternatively, if a baby in the womb is a person, there are no legitimate or moral reasons to have an elective abortion. In other words, is the baby in a womb in the womb like Tom's damaged knee cartilage, or is it something more than that? 
well, I believe that science falls quite short of answering that question. At the very least, as we will see, I think it's fair to say that there are is no universal consensus on a scientific evaluation of the personhood of the unborn. I think philosophy also falls short, losing itself in very tight and technical discussions over what warrants personhood. So how do we answer the question of personhood? And just as important, why is the issue of personhood so very crucial when we're talking about abortion? Well, writer and pastor John Piper raised a very important consideration when he talked about what happens when there is a seeming conflict between two granted rights. Piper says, we know the principle of justice that when two legitimate rights conflict, the right that protects the higher value should prevail. We deny the right to drive at 100 miles per hour because the value of life is greater than the value of being on time or getting thrills. The right of the unborn not to be killed and the right of a woman not to be pregnant may be at odds, but they are not equal rights. Staying alive, says Piper, is more precious and more basic than not being pregnant. What happens then when my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness interferes with your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I can't complain that my happiness is contingent on possessing, on me possessing your brand new Ferrari, and thus when I steal it and the police pull me over after I've stolen your hypothetical Ferrari, it won't do for me to say that I have an unalienable right to happiness, and the only way I could be happy is to steal your Ferrari, and therefore, police officer, you must let me go and be happy in my new Ferrari. No, of course, that's that's ridiculous. It's absurd. When my rights infringe on another person's rights, then something has to give. Let me give you a more realistic example. If I live in an apartment, my right to happiness, as expressed by listening to a loud rendition of Metallica's Inner Sandman at 1 a.m., will likely interfere with my neighbor's right to happiness, as expressed in his getting a good night's sleep. It's not enough for me to assert my rights to happiness, nor is it enough for me to tell the government to keep their hands off of my sound system. No, when our rights clash like that governmental adjudication is often what is called for in any complex ethical situation one moral rises to the top and becomes the most important consideration as piper is saying maybe we could call that the chief moral principle or the overriding ethical principle i don't know but in other words in any given ethical situation from a scriptural standpoint what is the single most important thing to consider and let me admit and grant we must and should consider the lives of women and the various hardships they face in pregnancy we must and should consider issues like poverty hardship for young people that get pregnant and how pregnancy might hold a young person in college back we must and should consider issues like whether or not parents do a good job of parenting unwanted children there are these and many other considerations that surround pregnancies and these considerations are very important but ultimately 
there is a moral issue here that is more important and greater than all of those others, and that is the one issue that abortion comes down to, and that is the issue of whether or not abortion ends a human life. That is the crux of abortion, my friends. In one small sentence, does abortion end a human person's life or not? Now, it's a complex issue, of course, but it boils down to that one significant question. Is an unborn child a human person? Because if he or she is a human person, then the Bible is very, very, very clear that we are not to kill. And honestly, most even people that don't follow the Bible are very, very, very clear on whether or not we are allowed to kill persons. I would say that pretty much every other meaningful moral system in the world is very clear that human persons are not to kill other human persons, but honestly, I guess I've seen signs that that sort of thing is changing here lately. And now that brings us to what does the Bible say about ending a human person's life? And and look, I know we've not addressed what the Bible says about whether or not the unborn is a person. We're getting there. But first First, let's say, what does the Bible say about ending a human person's life? I'm not going to go through every verse because there's dozens, but how about 1 John 3.15? You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Exodus 20.13, thou shalt not kill or you shall not murder in more modern translations. Romans 13.9, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet in any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Numbers 35.18, if anyone has in his hand an object capable of causing death and strikes another person and he dies, the murderer must be put to death. Now look, if you're a Christian listening to this, can you think of any biblical situation where it is permissible to kill another human person? Well, I suppose one can make an Old Testament case for family defense and one can make an Old Testament case for an avenger of blood killing somebody who has killed a family member and one can make a New Testament case for the government executing criminals. But I think we would all agree that the teaching of the Bible is quite clear that killing people or persons is wrong. Now, if you think, apart from some narrow self-defense instances, that it is, in fact, okay to kill human people according to the Bible, then look, let's just be straight. We're not going to find a lot of common ground here because you and I have a radically different interpretation of the Bible if you think the Bible gives clearance to kill human persons. And that returns us to the crucial issue of abortion. We're going to keep pounding on this because this is the question. Is an unborn child the same in God's eyes as a born child? Or as those who support abortion would argue, is it okay in God's eyes to kill a child in the womb, but of course not okay to kill a child outside of the womb? The prime question here, the one that takes precedence over all the other issues, is the baby in the womb, is it a human life? Is it a human person? Harold O.J. Brown is a Harvard-trained biochemist, philosopher, and theologian pretty clever dude. He wrote, the Bible does not deal specifically with abortion, which is true. That word is not in the Bible. He continues, for that matter, it does not deal specifically with infanticide, the killing of babies, nor does it talk about parasite, fratricide, 
uxoricide, the killing of one's wife, nor genocide, the killing of a whole race. Examples of such crimes are mentioned, but not singled out for special treatment. In fact, the Bible does not even directly discuss suicide, self-killing. There are specific provisions against homicide, the deliberate taking of human life. The Bible prohibits the taking of innocent human life. If the developing fetus is shown to be a human being, person, then we do not need a specific commandment against feticide or abortion any more than we need something specific in the Bible that forbids uxoricide or wife killing. The general commandment against killing covers both. So that's pretty heavy stuff. On the other hand, philosopher Mortimer Adler, following along with our friend Katie Watson from earlier, claimed that the unborn is a part of the mother's body in the same sense that an individual's arm or leg is a part of a living organism. An individual's decision to have an arm or leg amputated falls within the sphere of privacy, the freedom to do as one pleases in all matters that do not injure others, key quote there, or the public welfare. Similarly, pro-choice author Barbara Ehrenreich, writing in the New York Times, says, a woman may think of her fetus as a person or as just cells, depending on whether the pregnancy is wanted or not. This does not reflect moral confusion, but choice in action. Moreover, a woman may think of the fetus as a person and still find it necessary and morally responsible to have an abortion. So, Ehrenreich Reich's philosophy here is, well, honestly, it's very strange to me. Basically, she says personhood is decided by the mother. If the mother thinks the fetus is a person, it is. If the mother thinks it's not, it's not. And then she goes on to say something which I think is honestly audacious, and I think most people would probably agree with me here, that if the mother thinks of her unborn child as a person, she can still go ahead and morally be responsible in deciding to end the life of that person. Huh, I don't know. I don't, that's, I struggle with that. Well, in light of all that we've talked about so far, I'd like to make five arguments today about the personhood of the unborn, ultimately concluding that the unborn is a person and therefore should not be killed in the 97% of pregnancies that we have mentioned above. So five arguments today for the personhood of the unborn. I will start with a grammatical scriptural argument against abortion. Now you're going to note so far that I have almost completely avoid using the, avoided using the term fetus. I don't like that term and I reject it for a very simple theological reason because I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no difference between a born baby and an unborn baby because the Bible treats both of those beings exactly the same way and, here's the grammatical argument, uses exactly the same vocabulary for unborn children and born children. In other words, there is no word for 
feed us in the Bible. For instance, Luke 1.41 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now turn over the page to Luke 2.16, and it says, They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Well, in Luke 1.41, Luke who was a first century physician, tells us about one baby in the womb, John the Baptist, who leaps when he hears the voice of Mary, mother of Jesus. In Luke 2.16, Luke tells us about Mary and Joseph and their baby Jesus, who has been born and is lying in the manger. In English, we see the word baby is used for both unborn John in the womb and born Jesus in the manger. And there's a reason that it's the same word there, because in the Greek, the same exact word is used for a baby in the womb and a baby in the manger, and that word is brephos. It's the same word used in Luke 18.15 where it says people were bringing infants, brephos, to Jesus so that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. This is ultimately where Jesus says, hey, let the children come unto me. The word brephos is the Greek word that is used for babies in the womb, babies outside of the room. And that is plank number one in determining what the Bible has to say about abortion. Grammatically speaking, the Bible uses the same word for a baby in womb and outside of the room. And I would argue that honestly, friends, we know this sort of instinctively, that there is no moral difference between a baby in the womb and a baby out of the womb. Even really, really progressive news sites that are almost certainly editorially pro-choice will rarely call a a baby in the wombs of celebrities and royalty, a fetus. Let me give you some examples of that. In 2012, um, Kate Middleton was pregnant, and this is what ABC News said when that was reported. Quote, Kate Middleton is pregnant. The most eagerly awaited pregnancy was announced today. The child, whether boy or girl, will eventually be heir to the British throne, according to new legislating le legislation awaiting final approval. Now, that was when this unborn child in Kate Middleton's womb was just a few weeks old. ABC News didn't use fetus there. It was a child, boy or girl, that's eventually going to be heir to the throne. Similarly, according to the BBC, the unborn royal baby, that's a quote, who is third in line and in direct succession to the throne will one day be head of the armed forces, supreme governor of the Church of England and head of the Commonwealth and subsequently head of state of 16 countries. Glamour magazine said this, no details yet on whether the baby is a boy or girl. This is again, Kate Middleton was 12 weeks pregnant. No details yet on whether the baby is a boy or girl, but the child stands a great chance of one day becoming a monarch. Golly, I'm just so happy for them, says the writer of Glamour. Again, child, baby, boy or girl. This is the language of when we refer to the unborn in the womb of a celebrity or royalty. One more, this is from mirror.co.uk about Kate Middleton and Prince Harry's baby. While the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have made no official comment about the 
baby due in the fall. Harry, his brother, has found it hard to keep the secret. Prince William's cousin, Princess Eugenie, has also been telling friends that the baby is a boy, according to sources. So, all those articles, go look. You might occasionally find an article that's going to refer to the unborn in the womb of a celebrity or royalty as a fetus, but I'm telling you, it's rare. And it's rare because we know that there's not a fundamental moral difference between an unborn baby and a born baby. So that's number one, my grammatical argument. Number two, a scripture theological argument against abortion. Consider these passages in the Bible and how they speak of of the unborn and think about how God views the unborn in their in light of these passages. For instance, Psalm 22 verse 9, David says, it was you, speaking to God, who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So David says God was his God when he was in the womb. David is referring to himself in the womb as me. God was his God before he was even born. Maybe in a deeper way. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, It was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Wow. How about Isaiah 44 too? This is the word of the Lord your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear Jacob, my servant. So look, it's God who brings life in the womb of the mother and he plans the life of the unborn child. How about Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5? The word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Isaiah 49.1, coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. Oh, hey, before Jeremiah and Isaiah were born, God knew them. God called them. He set them apart. Does that sound like a description of a clump of cells to you? It doesn't to me. What about Genesis 25, verse 21? Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, Rebecca conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. (laughs) Wait a minute. What was in her womb, according to God? Two clumps of cells that could be easily disposed of, like Tom's knee cartilage? No. Two nations. Two peoples. Two 
children. All three of those descriptions are used of the children in the womb of Rebekah. And this demonstrates to us how God sees the unborn in the womb. Clearly from this passage, he sees them as they are now or now in the womb at that time and as they will be in their future. Potentiality is actuality to a God who lives outside of time. One more passage. Let's revisit Luke 1 where John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. We see this in Luke 1.35. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Well, we see three big things there. The one to be born in the womb of Mary is going to be called the Son of God. Jesus was the Son of God in Mary's womb. We also see Elizabeth called Mary, along those lines, the mother of my Lord when she was just a few weeks, couple of months pregnant. Not the mother of a clump of cells that lack personhood. Elizabeth called Mary at the time, just a couple of months pregnant with Jesus, the mother of my Lord. Jesus was Lord in the womb. Finally, of course, we see John the Baptist leaping for joy when he heard Mary's voice. That's what Elizabeth says. The baby leaped for joy. That is an emotion. That is a human person response, not the activity of a mindless personless clump of cells. Theologian Wayne Grudem commenting on this passage says, Elizabeth noted that the baby leaped for joy, which attributes personal human activity to him. He was able to hear Mary's voice and somehow, even prior to birth, feel joyful about it. In 2004, researchers at the University of Florida found that unborn children can distinguish their mother's voices and distinguish music from noise. Another study reported in Psychological Psychology Today in 1998 confirmed that babies hear and respond to their mother's voices while still in the womb, and the mother's voices have a calming effect on them. More recent research from 2013 has shown that babies learn words and sounds in the womb and retain memories of them after they are born. That's mind-blowing. And all of those things, and what we're going to keep talking about, makes it incredibly difficult to convince me that the unborn in the womb is not a person. Let me give you a scientific argument against abortion, at least a short one. Dr. Diane Irving, she is a 
biochemist and a biologist and a professor at Georgetown University, and she has a PhD in philosophy. So this is the cleverest of people right here. She says, scientifically, something very radical occurs between the processes of gametogenesis and fertilization. The change from a simple part of one human being, i.e. a sperm, and a simple part of another human being, i.e. an oocyte, usually referred to as an ovum or an egg, which simply possesses human life to a new, genetically unique, newly existing individual, whole living human being, a single cell embryonic human zygote. That is, upon fertilization, parts of human beings have actually been transformed into something very different from what they were before. They've been changed into a single, whole human being. During the process of fertilization, the sperm and the oocyte cease to exist as such, and a new human being is produced. The product of fertilization is a living human being with 46 chromosomes. Gametogenesis refers to the maturation of germ cells resulting in gametes. Fertilization refers to the initiation of a new human being. In other words, this brilliant biochemist, biologist, professor, and PhD in philosophy, Dr. Diane Irving, says that a human being, a new human being, is created from the moment of fertilization. And I want to ask you again, those of you that maintain a pro-choice position, are you certain in light of evidence like that and in light of what we've already read so far in the Bible, are you certain that this is not a person that you are dealing with? Or if you think it is, are you certain, 100% certain that it's okay to kill that which is a person, that which is a living human being. Very similarly, Dr. Maureen Kondik, who is a neurobiology and anatomy professor at the University of Utah, another brilliant person, writes, Embryos are not merely collections of human cells, but living creatures with all of the properties that define any organism as distinct from a group of cells. Embryos are capable of growing, maturing, maintaining a physiologic balance between various organ systems, adapting to changing circumstances, and repairing injury. Mere groups of human cells do nothing like this under any circumstances. Unless we are willing to assign personhood proportionate to ability, young children, for example, might be only 20% human, while people with myopia, nearsightedness, might be 95% human, the limited abilities of prenatal humans are irrelevant, says Dr. Kondik, to their status as human beings. So, in light of that, I want you to consider that almost 100% of elective abortions happen after seven weeks. The human baby embryo in that situation has fingers and toes, an easily discernible shape, bones, eyes, ears, etc. It is not a clump 
of cells. Number four, I want to make a DNA argument, which is obviously a subset of a scientific argument. And this is, I believe, a counter to the pro-choice claim, which is my body, my choice. 2007, North Carolina dropped all charges against a man named Dwayne Allen Dale, who had spent nearly half of his life in prison for a rape he did not commit. Dale, now 39, when he was released from prison, was sentenced to two life sentences plus 18 years in 1989. He always maintained his innocence, but he was convicted of rape after a 12-year-old victim identified him as her assailant, and the state claimed that hair found at the crime scene was microscopically consistent with his. Standard protocol would have ordered the destruction of all the evidence in this case after a period of time, but years later, when a police officer originally involved in the case retired, authorities found a piece of the girl's nightgown in an evidence bag in his desk drawer. The nightgown had not been entered as evidence during Dale's trial in 1989 because the victim's other personal items were considered sufficient. It was tested by the State Bureau of Investigations and new analysis of the DNA on the victim's nightgown matched a different person entirely. Wayne County District Attorney Brandy Victory asked the state court in light of that DNA evidence to dismiss the original charges with prejudice, which means that Dale cannot be retried on the offense. Well, did you hear that? The DNA matched a different person. A different person. A baby in the womb is a different person from the mother because he or she, the unborn, has different DNA. In other words, the distinct genetic identity of the unborn child shows that he or she is far different in every single cell of the child's body from any part of the mother's own body, for every cell of the mother's body contains the mother's DNA, not the child's DNA, and as such, every cell of the child's body contains the child's DNA, not the mother's DNA, says theologian Wayne Grudem. Similarly, Dr. Russell Moore says some abortion advocates respond to all of this about abortion with the phrase, well, it's the woman's body. In other words, my body, my choice. Well, the baby might be in the woman's body, says Dr. Moore, but the baby is not the women's body. It has its own DNA. It has its own genetic code. It has its own blood type, its own functioning brain, kidneys, and lungs. The baby is not the woman's body. The baby is in the woman's body, but that's not the same thing. And it's not the same because this line of reasoning denies something that is fundamental to our society, the idea of natural rights. And as Stephanie Anderson and Randy Alcorn argue, a Chinese zygote, which is a new human in the earliest stage of, an, of development, a fertilized egg, implanted in a Swedish woman will always be Chinese and never Swedish. Why? Because his biological identity is based on his genetic 
code, not that of the body in which he resides. If the woman's body were the only one involved in a pregnancy, then it would mean she has two noses, four legs, two sets of fingerprints, two brains, two circulatory systems, and two skeletal systems. Half the time, she must also have testicles and a penis. Can anyone seriously argue, says Grudem and Anderson, that a male child's reproductive organs are part of his mother's body just because he resides there? So I think the fact that a child has different DNA and different blood type and different genetic code in every way and different organs, etc., demonstrates that we are not dealing with a my body, my choice situation. We are dealing with a different body, therefore not your choice situation. Final argument, the future life or predestination or God's planning argument. A story is told that an ethics professor once proposed the following conundrum to his class. He says, here's the situation. The father in this family had syphilis and the mother had tuberculosis. Of their four previous children, the first child was born blind, the second one died, the third was both deaf and dumb, and the fourth was born with tuberculosis. What would you advise the woman in this situation to do when she finds out that she's pregnant again? One student, of course, piped up and said, I would advise she abort that child. And the professor said to her, congratulations, you have just killed Beethoven, because that is the circumstances of Beethoven's birth. Many millions, hundreds of, honestly, we could say billions, many billions of children have been born into difficult situations, but few of those children have been born into more difficult difficult situations than Beethoven. Aren't you music lovers kind of glad that his parents didn't have a way to easily terminate his existence in the womb? I'm going to tell this story in a little bit more detail in the next couple of episodes eventually, but I myself, I was very likely the product of rape. My birth mom, I was adopted. I was adopted when I was like uh, six weeks old or something like that. But my birth mom got pregnant when she was only 13. And it appears that my father, when she was impregnated, was an adult. So at least my birth mom appears to be the victim of statutory rape. Further, I was born with significant birth defects in my legs. And I had to be in a two-legged cast for like weeks after my birth. I'm happy to say now that my legs work just fine. Thank you very much and that I'm even happier that my birth mom didn't abort me but she gave me up for adoption. What she did was heroic and honestly from the little research I've been able to pull together I can tell it cost her a great deal of sacrifice but after I was born and she gave me up for adoption she went on to become a decorated special forces war hero not even kidding and she's now married to one of the most influential people in the country so her teenage pregnancy ultimately didn't hold her back even if it did would she be justified in aborting me would beethoven's parents have been justified to abort him what if your parents had made that decision we have seen in the Bible, that the unborn is a person in the eyes of God. Is it ever right to kill a person that means you no harm? Again, let's consider a couple of passages we already talked about. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, 
I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. And in Isaiah 49, God says to Isaiah, or actually Isaiah says of God, the Lord called me before I was born. And now says the Lord, Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. It's not just Isaiah and Jeremiah. God has a plan for every unborn in every womb. Are you comfortable advocating for the illegal, uh, the legal ability to kill that which God sees so much potential in? I don't think you should be. Ephesians 5, 8 through 9 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Christians are commanded to find out what pleases the Lord. I believe we have seen in multiple scriptures today that the unborn are persons in God's eyes, and it does not please the Lord to kill persons. In fact, I can go so far as to authoritatively say that the shedding of innocent blood, the killing of persons that should not be killed, is something that God literally hates. Let that sink in. God hates something. One of the things God hates is the shedding of innocent blood, according to Proverbs 6, verse 16. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, and a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. God hates the shedding of innocent blood, and Christians should hate that also. The Bible very clearly teaches that the unborn are persons. They have a destiny. God knows them in the womb. He puts them together in the womb. These unborn experience pain. They run from needles inserted into the womb. They can hear their mother's voice. Apparently, they're learning words in the mother's womb. And even John the Baptist kicked and leaped at the voice of Mary, mother of Jesus, in his mother's womb. If you are being presented with unquestionable evidence here that God is utterly opposed to the killing of persons and that he hates the shedding of innocent blood, can you stand before him and testify that you are 100% convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that despite all scripture to the contrary, that the unborn in the womb is somehow not a person, that the killing of the unborn does not qualify as the shedding of innocent blood? If you are 100% convinced of those things, then I can honestly say that I cannot even honestly conceive how a Christian could arrive at such a conclusion, given how the Bible discusses the unborn in the Old and New Testaments. Maybe you are convinced, however, and you're not really sure, though, that you should impress your morals upon others. Maybe you think that doing such a thing is tyranny, like some of the people we quoted earlier, or that it somehow violates the separation of church or state, uh, church and state. And I've heard a lot of people claim this. People that make those cases 
honestly, they fail to understand how the United States works. The United States is a democratically governed constitutional republic. No, we do not vote on all issues like a pure democracy does, but we do vote for representatives who will vote on those issues. Do you believe people should be able to legally acquire cannabis? Do you think speeding over 100 miles per hour should be illegal? Do you think senators should be disallowed from taking bribes from big businesses and lobbyists? Do you think libraries should have federal funding? Should teachers get paid more? Look, whatever you believe about those issues, our government is set up so that you and I vote for government representatives that agree with you or I and will vote our way. And you know what? It's not tyranny to do that. It's not forcing your morals on other people. That is precisely how our government is set up to work. It is perfectly rational, democratic, normal, acceptable. It's proper to vote your beliefs. That's what we're supposed to do. We have the freedom to do that in this country, and the Supreme Court decision on abortion has essentially paved the way for our democratically elected state representatives to decide each state's position on abortion and literally thousands of other issues. That's how it's designed. That's what we're supposed to do. It's not wrong for a Christian to vote their conscience. It's not wrong for a Hindu to vote their conscience. It's not wrong for an atheist to vote their conscience. We're supposed to do that. And when we point the finger at each other and falsely accuse each other of these horrible things like wanting men and I mean like wanting women to suffer and die and all of these sorts of things and wanting to enact religious tyranny when we when we do that by the way it's another thing God hates according to Proverbs 6 the false witness bared about somebody else when we do that we're just we're just lying we're supposed to vote our convictions so vote your convictions that's how it's designed well allow me to close for now with these thoughts by Pastor John Piper on the unborn John the Baptist's joyful jump at the sound of Mary's greeting Piper Piper says, in verse 7 of Luke 1, it reads, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Then in verse 44, Elizabeth interprets that leap like this. Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And Luke says that Elizabeth said this because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verses 41 through 42 say, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed, in other words, the Holy Spirit prompted her to say that this leap of the baby in her womb was a leap of joy. Never in the Bible is any animal said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Never does the Bible say that a person's arm or leg or kidney or skin is filled with the Spirit. Tissue is not filled with the Holy Spirit, only persons are filled with the Spirit. What Luke is doing, and he is doing it as the spokesman of Christ, is treating this child in the womb as a person. He uses the word baby, which he later uses the same word for Jesus in the manger. He uses the word joy, which is what persons feel. It's an emotion. He uses the phrase filled with the Spirit, which is what God does to persons. He simply assumes he is dealing with a human person in the womb, and therefore so should we. 
and I completely agree with that, and I hope that you're persuaded. And if you're not, I just would ask you, go back to the Word, go back to the Word, go back to the Word. Because the stakes are high here. If we, in advocating for abortion, are advocating for the death of persons, then we are doing something that I believe God hates. We need to be certain on such an issue. And let me also say this. My understanding of the statistic, according to Planned Parenthood, is that somewhere between 25% and 33%, maybe even slightly higher than that, of adult women in the United States of America will have an abortion at some point in their lifetime. If you are in that camp, you need to know this. While I believe that abortion is wrong and a sin and doesn't please God, you need to know that the guy on the other end of the microphone, the one that's speaking right now, is himself a sinner. I have no moral authority to look down on anybody. I am a chief of sinners. I have been saved not by any merit or goodness of my own. I was addicted to pornography for many years. I've said and done things that are gross and stupid and bad and embarrassing and just sinful. I can't look, I, I have no right to look down on a single soul. And you and I, dear lady who has had an abortion, have this in common. Nothing in our lives warrants the salvation of Jesus. There's nothing really good in us. We can't save ourselves by our works. We can't make up for our sins. We can't do it. But the gospel, the good news is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you and me. And God doesn't love me any more than you and I don't think he loves you any more than me. I think we're both standing in incredible need of the grace of God. So if hearing this has made you feel guilty, if hearing these verses of scripture has made you feel guilty, you need to know you are guilty, but you're not any more guilty than I am or anybody else that's been listening to this. We're all guilty. We're not all guilty of the same things, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And as you've probably heard before, the payment or the wages of sin is death. We've all earned death. And yet the free gift of God through faith in Jesus is eternal life. So, you don't need to feel guilty if you have turned to God and asked for forgiveness for your sin because he has washed it away. He promises, though your sins are as scarlet, he'll make them white as snow. And he will. And he does. When we turn to him in faith, trusting him in what he did on the cross, dying on the cross for our sin, having faith in him, following him, believing him, not earning our salvation, but following him and believing him. When we do this, 
we can be assured that he has made our sins as white as snow. He has blotted them out. They are no more. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So all my years of sinning and your years of sinning and all the sins that you and I are going to do in the future, if we turn to Jesus in faith, believing and ask him to forgive us, he will because he's good and because he's paid the price. So know this, for whatever we've done, if we're in Christ, if we've turned away, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good day to you and Godspeed.